Well, let's, let's pray uh, as we come to God's word together. Father, we thank you so much for your living word, and we pray uh, for the work of your spirit among us now, that as we uh, study your word together, you would please uh, be at work in our lives and uh, bring about what you plan for good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a long day. It's been a long day, has it not? And this is a big passage. And uh, that was a big pudding, was it not? <laughs> and uh, let me say that this, because this is a big passage, you're going to have to think hard for the next half hour. And because that was a big pudding, that is going to be working against you, thinking hard for the next half hour. So can I encourage you to use your pen and your finger and prod your neighbor when they look like they're nodding off? It is also a very warm and slightly gloomy and rather cozy and comfortable room and just the sort of room that would be nice to go to sleep in, isn't it? But let's try and keep each other awake while we look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. When did you last hear anything on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 or talk to anybody about 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? Good chance that your conversation was about something controversial, in inverted commas. Uh, These chapters have been the ground of tremendous controversy amongst Christians, as you all know, and you may have experienced firsthand. Almost every new trend in uh, evangelicalism in the last four decades or so that has swept through the church has found its rationale in in these chapters. Uh, I'm going to say straight away that I do not think the key to understanding these chapters is to be found in discussions of phenomena. So much paper and ink, airtime, PhD theses have been spent in dissecting what precisely prophecy is and isn't here, what precisely tongues are and aren't here, what exactly a word of knowledge is. And actually, apart from prophecy in tongues, there is very little descriptive information to go on in these chapters and even with prophecy in tongues, it's only, very, it's only possible to sketch in the broadest outlines uh, from these chapters about what was going on in Corinth. Can I add to that, that we do not know whether this is the regular week-by-week Corinthian meeting that's being discussed here. There's quite a lot about the Corinthian get-togethers from chapter 11 onwards in this book. Uh, And it's difficult to know if this is a a bigger get-together of a number of house congregations, Uh, difficult to know the frequency, difficult to know from chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, if this is all they did when they got together or if Paul is just putting his finger on particular things that they did. There are lots of things that one just has to speculate about uh, when one comes to these chapters. Uh, I've no doubt whatever that the Corinthians knew precisely what he was talking about in every detail, but some of the details are uncomfortably difficult for us to tie up, and I take it that the Lord has made it that way for various reasons. The other difficulty with these chapters is that, as with the rest of the letter, these chapters tend to be read in isolation, as though, for example, they were the Bible's instruction manual on how to do the spiritual stuff. But of course, that isn't why Paul was writing these chapters. He was writing in response to their thing that they've written to him, 12.1, and in order to correct their dysfunctional activity, because so much of their activity is dysfunctional. 
reading uh, these chapters in isolation is not always a helpful thing, and we'll try. I'll try as hard as I can to 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 fit this. These, this section into the message of the letter as a whole. And I think you'll find that just as the other things have done, uh, the big issue is the same, uh, running all the way through uh, the letter. Now, uh, let me make a couple of uh, preliminary remarks. Uh, do you remember that uh, quite often Paul quotes Corinthian language back to them, and particularly in this middle section of the letter? Well, there's a bit of that going on here in this chapter. People, these chapters, people, uh, people differ on how much is words the Corinthians have spoken to him and how much is his words to them. Uh, but there's certainly some of that going on. Do you remember chapter 7-1? Remember how the pattern goes? 7-1, about the things you've written, about which you wrote. And then we get their idea. And then we get his modification of their idea. We looked at that this morning. In chapter 8, we get the headline statement about food sacrifice to idols. And then their idea. And then his idea. Now, I take it that when you get to chapter 12, about spiritual gifts, I'll use that phrase for a moment, although I'm going to modify it in a moment. I take it what you're expecting is their idea and then his modification. That seem reasonable? I think that's reasonable. Uh, and I think we do find that. We're expecting to see what they've written to him and what they've written and what he's written back. Uh, often this passage is approached with the agenda that is a kind of instruction manual for spiritual <coughs> gifts. But if you were approaching it as a Corinthian, having got this far in the letter that you've got, you would be, and having seen the way the apostle responds to the things that you've written for him, you're expecting him to quote you back to him and then to modify what you've said. Now, what do you think the big issue in these chapters is? I wonder if anybody here remembers Sesame Street. Put your hands up if you remember Sesame Street. Oh, yes, indeedy. Good, excellent, excellent. Um, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have been old enough to see it when I was small. And then to have it, uh, to see it again with my children, which is great fun. And maybe it'll come around with grandchildren, who knows? Uh, as you know only too well, if you were a Sesame Street baby, every episode of Sesame Street is brought to you by letters and a number. Sesame Street was brought to you today by the letters B and Z and the number 543. You know how it goes. What letters is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 brought to you by? Two letters. Two letters. Two letters standing for two words. I'll give you a minute and a half with your next door neighbor to see if you can come up with the two letters and the two words. Talk, talk. Go, go. Looking all the way through 12 to 14 now. You've got two minutes to do that. All right. Now, what are the two letters? Tell me what the two letters are. Letter number one. My word, what an assortment of letters. All right, did somebody say the letter L over there? Yeah, what do you think L stands for? Love, yes, L for love. Chapter 13, right in the middle of the, of the three chapters, L for love. What do you think the other letter might be? S, okay, S for? <laughs> Thank you. S for speech. Brothers and sisters, speech and love. Love is obvious. Let me introduce you to speech. 
Hold on to your hat. There's a lot of it. 12.2, speechless idols. 12.3, the speech that the Spirit of God generates. 12.8, the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, all speechy things. 12.10, prophecy, and finally tongues, speechy things. Uh, 12.15, what the foot says. 12.16, what the ear says. 12.21, what the eye can't say and the head can't say. 12.28, a bunch of people God has given to the church, including in significant measure, people who speak, apostles, prophets, teachers. That triad is re-echoed in 29. Are all the prophets, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? And finally, 12.30, finally, notably, at the end of the list, do all speak in tongues. Chapter 13, the love chapter, kicks off on exactly the same theme. If I speak but have not love. Verse 2, prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, but no love. Verse 8, prophecies, tongues, knowledge, speaking things will pass away. 13.11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. 14.1, follow the way of love and desire. Prophecy, a speaking thing. 14.2, who the tongue speaker speaks to. 14.3, who the one who prophesies speaks to. 14.4, what different sorts of speaking do. 14.5, the sort of speech that Paul would like them to do and why. 14.6, an example of how it would be if Paul came to them and spoke in a certain way. 14.7-8, two illustrations to do with making sounds. 14.9, how important it is to speak intelligibly in church. 14.11, how alienating it is if people do not speak intelligibly to one another in church. 14.13, he urges them to speak intelligibly and why they need to do that. 14.16, he talks about his speaking in tongues and why he doesn't do that in church. 14.21, he quotes from the Old Testament about a passage about foreigners speaking. 14.22, again, speaking tongues versus prophecy. 14.23 is all about how it will be if they all speak in tongues when they meet. 14.24 is about what will happen if they all prophesy when they meet. 1426 refers to the Corinthian eagerness to speak when they come together. 1427, he modifies their tongue speaking. 1429, he modifies their prophesying. What are these chapters about, brothers and sisters? Speaking. Yes? Are you convinced about that? Speaking all the way through from beginning to end, all the way through all three chapters. Speaking is something the Corinthians are very eager to do. Look at 14.26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. When you get together, you lot, you're dead keen to speak. Different sorts of speaking. Let all things be done for building up. He says, now, can I say that the heading in the NIV is not helpful? The headings in the NIV are not helpful, and uh, probably the ESV too. Just ignore them. Uh, The translation of verse 1 is not helpful either. We'll come back to that later on. But when you get to the substance of these chapters, it's all about speaking in a loving way. Now, let me remind you that the words speech and love are not particular to these chapters in the letter, are they? We've met them already. Remember speech? Chapter 1, verse 5. You have been enriched in all your speech 
and all knowledge. Yes, he introduces the letter with that idea. Speaking is a big thing at the beginning of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 10, look at back to 110. Again, reading this more literally, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you say the same thing, literally. They don't say the same thing. Here he's talking about their different opinions, the opinions they speak about different Christian leaders. Chapter 1, verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul or Apollos or Kephas. Their speech again is in focus here. Chapter 2, verse 1. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come speaking to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but in a different sort of way. Speech is very big at the beginning of the letter. Paul's gospel speaking, what he said and how he says it, is the big theme of chapters 1 to 4. Now for the Corinthians, right from the beginning, speech has always been a huge issue. So much so that as we discussed this morning, Paul modified his method when he came to Corinth. They are people who are wowed by impressive speech and he decided he wasn't going to do that because he wanted them to be convinced not by impressive speech, but by an impressive message, which is quite a different thing. They like impressive speech. They like to think themselves spiritual as well, more spiritual than Paul. And here in these chapters in 12 to 14, it would appear that the particular sort of speech they think is spiritual is tongue speaking. That's the big speech that gets so much time in these chapters. And whatever the Corinthian tongues were, and there's massive debate about that, what is absolutely clear from these chapters is that this sort of speech was not on its own intelligible to the hearer. Not on its own. The Corinthians, however, seem to have loved this way of talking when they get together. And it seems to be a marker of who's a spiritual person. Now, of course, the love word is not particular to chapter 13 either. We've already uh, bumped into it right at the end of the letter uh, about uh, love for the Lord being the critical thing. In chapter 13, love for one another is a critical thing. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the detail of these chapters because there's just too much to do. Uh, at something for, you know, uh, not just bedtime reading, but many bedtimes reading afterwards. Uh, do pick up a good book on this. Uh, John, Don Carson's book that was mentioned earlier in the weekend, uh, Showing the Spirit, is a good place to start for, uh, on these chapters. Um, uh, Vaughan Roberts' little book on 1, 1 Corinthians is a very helpful place. Uh, any decent commentary will help you work at the detail of these chapters, which is many and various. However, can I just draw your attentions to the modifications Paul makes in their speaking? In chapter 14, and I'm going to skirt through these very quickly just to give you a feel for how he directs them to differ from what they're doing at the moment. And there are four modifications, I think, three, possibly four. The first modification is many to few. Look at 1426 again. When they come together, they're all ready to speak and eager to do it. And what Paul does in the, wor- uh, the verses that follow is he contracts the number verse 29 at most two or three prophets to speak 
That's the first modification. They're all keen to speak. He says, fewer, two or three. Uh, He also wants them to move from unintelligible speech to intelligible speech. Now, you'll find that all the way through chapter 14. Uh, Let me point you, for example, to 14.9. With yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you'll be speaking into the air. Look at 14.27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, uh, two or at most three, and let and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, if you can't make it intelligible, don't speak. If it can't be understood, no point in the gathering and sharing it. Unintelligible to intelligible. Third, disordered to ordered. There's quite a lot of one at a time, no one interrupting, listening carefully, not all speaking at once. And I think there's also, fourthly, a female to male thing. Comes in at the end of chapter 14. Now, not really time to go into this, particularly as we haven't also gone into chapter 11. But I think there's something going on in behind the scenes of this letter with some of the women in the Corinthian congregation. Paul is not anti-women speaking in the in the public public gathering in chapter 14. He wants women to prophesy, and I don't think he's talking about private stuff there. Uh, it's there in chapter 11. In both chapter 11 and 14, there is a suggestion, however, that the behavior of certain women in the congregation was viewed with disfavor by the outside world. Uh, The clues are there, I think, in particular words, language uh, uh, around the, the words shame and disgrace and propriety is used both in chapter 11 and chapter 14. And I think that probably means that certain cultural markers of propriety in relation to hair and speech, chapter 11 and 14, were being crossed by some of the women in a way that brought disapproval from outside. I wouldn't go to the stake for that. I can't be absolutely sure. Slightly speculative. But that issue of behavior in the church being viewed with disapproval from outside is an issue elsewhere in the letter, as we met this morning. I'm not sure about that one, being slightly speculative about that, but that's my guess. Again, they knew exactly what was going on, and we don't. Those, then, are the the modifications he makes to them in chapter 14. His reasons are straightforward. There are three reasons, I think, for these modifications. One, that their current practices may build up the individual, but don't build up other people. Look at 14.4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And I take it that the difference between those is that one kind of speech is intelligible to others and the other not. The second uh, reason for these modifications is that uh, their current practices alienate believers. Uh, Look at verse 11 of chapter 14. If I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Unintelligible speech, he says, alienates you from one another. And thirdly, 
It alienates the church from unbelievers. Look at 1423. Um, If the whole uh, church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that they're off your heads? That's what he's saying. These are mad people here. What have we come for? On the other hand, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, very striking. That's the only place in the New Testament where the worship, wo- where worship wo- the worship word is used of the Christian gathering. It's very interesting, that. It's of the pagan being converted in the Christian gathering by intelligible speech going on one to another. So those are the three reasons I think he makes the modifications. He wants them to build up others. He wants them not to alienate one another. And he wants them not to alienate unbelievers who may be there. Now, the Corinthians, it seems, like impressive speaking especially if it has a kind of supernatural feeling edge to it but says paul what you like at the moment is not good for the gospel the way you're doing it here are some modifications you should make not good for the gospel because it's not building you up and it's not advancing the gospel in the culture around about speak differently speak Loving, he says. Now, just have a breather for 10 seconds. We've got a lot of information, and I want to get to what I think are the important verses in these chapters, which are 12, 1 to 6. So just uh, wake yourselves up for a moment. You know, get get yourselves going. uh, Get your brains in gear. Just for a minute. Have 20 seconds to talk to one another. All right. Okay, let's go again. Now, can I say that these verses at the beginning of chapter 12 are often skimmed over quickly because of the exciting stuff that lies beyond, but these verses are absolutely the key to understanding these chapters. Uh, Let me uh, read them again. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good. Now, let me introduce you to a word, and the word is pneumaticone. It's a Greek word. It is the word that is used in 12.1. Now, concerning pneumaticone, says Paul. And that word um, means either the things of the Spirit or the people of the Spirit. Could be either, probably within context, the the things of the Spirit. I think that's probably what the word means. Can I just note at this point that the idea of gift is not entailed in that word? Do you see what I mean by that? 
Our translation has concerning spiritual gifts, but the idea of gift is not entailed in that word. It just means the of the spirit things. Our translators have added the word gift there for reasons that I'll point you to in a moment. Just worth noting that there is only one place in the New Testament where in Greek the words spiritual and gift are put beside one another. Anybody know where that is? That's a nasty question. There's only one place and it isn't here. It's in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says to the Romans that he longs to impart to them some spiritual gift. And in that context, he's talking about coming and proclaiming the gospel to them, which is very interesting indeed. Now, I take it that that word pneumaticone, the of the spirit things, is the Corinthian word, the word that they've used to him, the word that they've written to him about. It's their idea. It's their word. And throughout this letter, the word spiritual is a word the Corinthians seem to like to apply to themselves. It's a word to do with their spiritual status. And I think that in the context of this chapter, it appears to refer especially to their possession of the tongue's gift, which they seem to regard as a marker of being spiritual. I think that's why they've written to him about the spiritual things. And by that, they probably mean, because the focus of the chapters is on that, their love for the tongue-speaking thing. So I take it that this is their word, and that they want to talk to him about what they consider to be the things of the Spirit. We've had their language. What are we expecting next? Anyone? His modification of their language. I'm sure that's right. That's, it's what he's done every time up to this point, and I think we assume he does it again. And he introduces another word, a different word. And the word is in verse 4. It is, I think, his word, not their word. And the word is charismata. Not pneumaticone, the of the spirit things, but charismata the grace things or the the grace gifts and the idea of gracious gift is entailed in that word as opposed to the other word that they use now two questions one given the fact that the general pattern of paul in these things is to take their language their idea and modify it do you think the change in the word is significant or unsignificant? Significant, I think, would, would fit, wouldn't it? If, it was, if he uses another word, the chances are it's a significant change. Can I just make the point that your English translation gives you no indication whatever that a different term is being used in verse 1 and verse 4? It's profoundly unhelpful. Your translators assume that he's talking about the same thing and that the change of word doesn't matter. My argument is that every time he's taken their language, he's changed it, and the change of word is likely to matter significantly. Uh, but the translation doesn't help here. Um, nearly every popular exposition of this chapter that I've come across deals with those two words as though they're just different words for the same thing 
and there's no significance in the different words. Second, can I ask, does Paul modify the idea in any other way? And I think the answer is yes. They've started off by talking about the things of the Spirit. He, after that gifts word in verse 4, doesn't just talk about the Spirit. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And varieties of service, but the same Lord, Jesus Christ. And varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all in everyone. They talk about things to do with the Spirit, by which they're referring to one thing in particular, I think a particular gift, and he, after his word, uses a whole stack of working words and ties them into the activity of the Trinity, not merely the Spirit. Now, I think these first verses are absolutely critical for understanding these chapters. I think the Corinthians think there is a particular phenomenon which marks them out as being of the Spirit people. Paul says, the Father, Son, and Spirit give all believers a rich variety of things. Do you see the modification that's going on there? From Spirit to Father, Son, and Spirit, and from one thing to a whole stack of things, and presumably from a limited number of people who have the one thing to everyone who receives good things from God. You see, there's a big difference in those uh, those th- little things. All kinds of ministries come from Father, Son, and Spirit. And no sort of ministry gift marks an individual out as specially spiritual. Every believer has Father, Son, and Spirit giving them things. That's the point. Why is speech one of the big themes of this letter? Because it's one of the ways that the Corinthians perceive themselves to be better than everybody else, more spiritual. And they look down on the apostles' speech as unimpressive in comparison to theirs. Now, brothers and sisters, can I just make the observation that when we refer to spiritual gifts... Meaning by that a particular set of activities that are especially the province of the Spirit, we are in danger of doing precisely what the Corinthians are doing. And so often the product of that is that the one who possesses this particular set or some of this particular set of abilities is seen to be more in touch with the work of the Spirit than the regular believer. That is precisely the mindset that the Apostle is writing to counter in these chapters. Now, once again, his methods here are alternative and subversive. And there's a great contrast, and the great contrast in these verses is between muteness And speech, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
he looks at their pre-Christian life and says it was characterized by two things. One, the mute idols that they belong to, idols in the Old Testament. They have eyes but don't see, ears but don't see, mouths but don't speak. They can't speak. Paul brings the non-speaking nature of their pre-Christian religion to the fore here. And notice that he also uh, brings the content of some of their speech to the fore. I think that's what he's doing in verse 2. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. I think he's talking to their, about their previous existence in paganism, which viewed Jesus as a cursed person or a cursed thing. On the other hand, he contrasts that with a different kind of speech. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do to your speech? Question. What does the Holy Spirit do to your speech? Well, the big thing that the Holy Spirit does to your speech is it turns your speech into speech from speech that cares nothing for Jesus to speech that reflects the lordship of Jesus. Do you see? I think that's what he's saying in these first few verses. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question from that. You can talk to your neighbor for 15 seconds about this question. Here's the question. Where is the dividing line in Paul's thought between spiritual and unspiritual? Talk to your neighbor about that question. Where is the dividing line between spiritual and unspiritual? Talk, talk. 15 seconds. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) You were just getting to it. Sorry, it's not a difficult question. Where is the dividing line in Paul's mind in these verses between spiritual and unspiritual? Answer? Yes, between pagan and Christian. That is the work of the Spirit. That is what the Spirit does to speech. The marker of the spiritual person is the spiritual person, is the person who acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, We'll meet that big time in chapter 2, if you want to look at chapter 2 later on. Chapter 2 is all about that. What is a spiritual person? A spiritual person is a Christian believer. Question. Where do the Corinthians draw the line between spiritual and unspiritual? Anyone? Where do you think? Tongue speakers and non-tongue speakers. The Corinthians love tongue speaking especially. They love speaking that is unintelligible. What's slightly alarming about that? Anyone? Yes. Their previous life was marked by muteness of idols. Slightly worrying for a Christian to love unintelligible communication. But that's what the Corinthians appear to be doing. Now, this is one of the biggest issues in this letter. The way Paul's division of humanity differs from the Corinthian division of humanity. 
Paul's division of humanity, the big division in humanity, according to Paul, is between Christian and non-Christian, spiritual and unspiritual. That's where the dividing line lies. Anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord is a spiritual one. He's in touch with the whole of the Trinity, has the whole package, Father, Son, and Spirit. They all come together. They always come together. The way Corinth does it, between, Corinth divides uh, spiritual and unspiritual between one Christian and another. Paul draws the line round the church. The Corinthians draw the line through the church. Absolutely critical in this letter. Between the spirituals like some of them and the less spiritual. They call them the weak. Um, They use those kind of pejorative terms for them. Now, interestingly, Paul says, 1418, that he speaks in tongues more than any of them. But he doesn't do it in public because it's not good for building one another up. I I think that must have made them fall off their chairs. (laughs) Again, Paul's practice is the thing that they have problems with. Do you remember this earlier in the day? Why is he restricting his tongue speaking? Is it because he's an unspiritual person? No, says Paul, I do it more than any of you. I just don't do it in public because it doesn't build other people up. Do you see? Freedom um, unexpressed for the good of others. Now, um, absolutely critical in these chapters then, uh, this idea. And this is absolutely critical to the letter because as we saw earlier on in the day, the Corinthians just think themselves better than other people better than Paul, better than Christians in other places. Some of them think they're better than others of them. There's a big divide within the church as well. And this is one of the biggest divides. Now, let's translate this into everyday stuff for us. Um, From Corinth to us, uh, I can pretty much guarantee that nobody here will ever have 1 Corinthians 13 at their wedding ever again. It's the great wedding passage, isn't it? It's the great lure of passage. But... There's nothing. Don't don't kill yourself if you had it at your wedding. I've preached it at a wedding. It's okay. It does talk about love, but if you were a Corinthian, by the time you got to chapter thirteen, I I absolutely guarantee there was not a single engaged couple in the congregation who said, "That's the one we need at our wedding service," because in its context, it is not a passage about love. It's a passage about. It's absence. Love is patient. Love is kind. But you guys aren't kind. It's a stinging rebuke, this chapter. Love does not envy or boast. Boasting's a big Corinthian word. They're very boastful. It does not insist on its own way, but they do. We speak how we want because we're free and spiritual. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. But the Corinthians, back in chapter 5, remember they rejoice in, they glory in the sexual immorality that's going on in the congregation. (laughs) It's a terribly painful chapter if you're a Corinthian, chapter 11, because it looks at all their behaviors and says, you guys are nothings look at 13 1 if i speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to move mountains but not love, I am a zero spiritually. And the Corinthians think they're so spiritual because of those things. Very painful chapter, chapter 13, if you're a Corinthian. You can use it at your wedding, but expect a slightly alternative sermon, perhaps, from somebody who sticks it in its context. Now, let me ask, uh, are we a culture, are we a culture that values speech? I think the answer has to be yes, we do. All the way from politicians and parliamentary uh, prime minister's question time to stand-up comedy, which is the biggest thing, we love clever speech, a snappy retort, something that wows the audience. We love it. In church, we just love an impressive speaker, don't we? Who are the high flyers in your congregation? Who were the high flyers in your Christian union? The one that everybody thought of as being special I'll bet my bottom dollar that the first ones that spring to mind are the ones with the speaking gifts, don't you think? Who does the Christian culture idolize? It's speakers. Who are the people that nobody values much in church? I'll bet there are no good speakers among them. But brothers and sisters, a gift is a gift. Something given And as Paul says to the Corinthians back in chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast about it as though you didn't? Why do you use your gifts for bigging yourself up rather than building one another up? Now, of course, there are some gifts that are very useful, and God has graciously given speaking gifts to his church because... The message is very important. That's a good thing. But those gifts are to be used for the good of others, not the gratification of the speaker, and certainly not as a marker of status or value. For as we've read in chapter 12, Father and Son and Spirit give different workings to everyone for the building up of the people. The truth is that the Corinthian patterns of speaking were seriously dysfunctional. But the very uncomfortable thing about these chapters is that you don't have to look Corinthian to be thoroughly Corinthian. On the other hand, this is a wonderfully liberating part of the Bible. Because you don't have to say, like the I or the hand, or the foot, or the head. Because I lack a certain gift, I am not useful. You can say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for making me the way I am. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for rescuing me, the person that I am. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me good things to get good things that can be used for the benefit of others. How can I use them for you today? Brothers and sisters, it is not an accident that you are the person that you are. It is not an accident. God did not take his eye off the ball the moment you were popping out. 
He knows exactly the way he's made you. None of it is accidental. The things he's given you, the experiences you've had in life, difficult and good. And he's a God who richly gives good things to all his people, the proper use of which is building one another up. Wonderfully liberating that, isn't it? Doesn't matter what you have or haven't. Don't go around envying the stuff that other people have. It's not a helpful thing to do. And it's only because you see those things as being markers of status or value or usefulness, but they're not. Just like the stuff you've got, they're things that the generous Father has given for the good of others. You've got them too. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that uh, your Spirit powerfully turns people from people whose lives and speaking had nothing to do with Jesus into people who recognize his lordship and speak words that recognize his lordship. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us uh, to not, not be like the Corinthians in this respect. We recognize the Corinthian in each one of us. We so often value people because of the things that they can do. We envy people because of the things that they can do. We despair of ourselves because of the things that we can't do. Please help us to be your glad creatures and happy servants. Help us to value the way you've made us and the people you've rescued us to be. And pray that whatever our situation in life and whatever the things that you've given to us or withheld from us, we would be glad to use the things that you've given and withheld for the good of others and the glory of your name. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.